What did he say? There's a guy in our quartet Talks like no one I've heard yet He mumbles, mumbles all the time He's got no reason and he's got no Hello, and welcome to the next voice you hear. I'm Juan Yoon, and to the left of me is my right hand man, Nevin Ryan. Hello, humans. Today, we're going to be looking at some different outlooks on what's happening in today's new renaissance. And if you heard our previous uh, podcast, you know what we mean by the new renaissance. About a month ago, we had the incredible pleasure of interviewing Patrick Pittman, editor of the Alpine Review. And uh, Patrick is definitely a modern-day renaissance man, in, in our opinion. In addition to being a writer, a playwright, a creative director, he's also a correspondent at Monocle, and on Monocle Radio, uh, along with, of course, being the editor of the amazing Alpine Review, which, uh, for those of you who don't know it, uh, is an independent journal, gives us giving us an expansive survey of today's world from some very thoughtful vantage points. They talk to brilliant people, travel all over the world, and each issue focuses on a major theme in our culture or in our civilization today. Patrick spent, um, I'd say, the good part of last year traveling around the world, finding and, and uh, working with incredible people, events, organizations that are shaping Western civilization today and um, providing a very useful perspective on the future to its readership. So in its third and latest issue, Patrick and his team tied in the theme of permanence into a 300-plus page journal. Permanence is the topic. And what an interesting thing to think about in today's day and age. So today we're going to be playing some bits and pieces from our interview with him and providing you with some, some of the deeper sort of insight and discussion in between. Here's a little bit of Patrick. And Patrick, what was it about the Alpine Review that, that really attracted you? And, and what do you think it brings to the world today that didn't already exist? Well, I think it is... You know, a scale of ambition is one thing. It's easy to be ambitious, but to actually pull something like that off in terms of substance, in terms of playfulness, in terms of humor, but also intellectual rigor. Um, it's a word I really value is earnestness. And it's one that's often, you know, derided. But I think to have earnest, critical engagement with the world and to understand what's going on in it is is difficult. And a, a lot of people fear asking big questions because they're afraid that people will mock them. And when I came across Alpine, I saw a magazine that just wanted to understand the big issues, the large-scale things, but didn't want to do it in some pretentious kind of way. It was a genuine and earnest engagement in the world out there. And that just really resonated with everything everything I've been doing in my writing and have been trying to do in other magazines. I just connected with it really immediately. So when, you know, we've been talking uh, recently in, in our sort of group of, of thinkers here called Bleu Blanc Rouge and L'Institut Idee, we've been talking about how we're living in kind of a, an axial age, a, a new renaissance, as we call it, and that 
most people during a renaissance don't realize that they're in one. They're going about their day, having their meetings and, you know, picking up their kids from school and et cetera. It's only in a, you know, a subsequent era that people look back and say that was a period of extraordinary, extraordinary change. When I saw the Alpine Review, I thought if there were some artifacts from this era proving that not only were we in a new renaissance, but more importantly, that they were there were thinkers who were to some degree aware of it and chronicling it, analyzing it, and, and even in some ways influencing it to be more uh, more conscious kind of uh, transition or, or evolution, I, I think of the Alpine Review as one of those cultural artifacts. Is, is that in some ways how you see it, or is that free, does that freak you out that I say that? Well, that, that goes to the, there's always that risk when you ask big questions, like, well, I don't want to come across as, you know, having airs about it. There is, I mean, it's interesting, we have in the new issue, there's an interview with the, you know, the great Lewis Lapham, who um, has devoted um, much of the later years of his career to excavating those artifacts across time of thinking with his um, Lapham's Quarterly. And um, the conversation we have with him is about what we risk now in terms of the ephemeral nature of of the of publishing, of writing, of content, of just discarding things and not leaving, you know, not having that ability for future generations to excavate, to to mine and to understand where we came from in those things. And, you know, that's always something like Alpine is, is meant to be a little bit of a substantial, you know, line in the sand at different points you know we don't we don't claim you know you 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 talk about renaissance and you know quite stubbornly and deliberately the theme of this new issue was we 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 gave it the theme of permanence we wanted to talk about how everything we do ripples across time and there is no one particular point of disruption or change that will profoundly change everything after it's that we are always in these points of change and all we want to do is try and observe and understand that while acknowledging that things feel profoundly disruptive at this point and I mean I I chose a a quote that I loved to open this issue from a great short film by the animator Don Hertzfeld and uh, to understand this uh, quote you have to imagine it being spoken by a crudely drawn stick figure uh, in which she says you know do not lose time on daily trivialities do not dwell on petty detail for all of these things melt away and drift apart within the obscure traffic of time live well and live broadly you are alive and living now now is the envy of all of the dead now that that to me was the the marker for my thinking in this it's yes there is we are in an epoch things will resonate we need to understand that we need to understand our implications we also need to understand how to live now and that's what the issue tries to do now i'm sure some of you may or may not be familiar with that quote from don hertzfeld I'm actually more familiar with his later work and his film Rejected in particular. I'm sure some of our young listeners would remember the uh, the quote, uh, My spoon is too big. <laughs> My did. spoon is too big. You did that very well. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, hopefully someone got that other than you one. <laughs> but back to the quote, now is the envy of all the dead. It's from Hertzfeld's most recent short film, The World of Tomorrow, which is a brilliant film that follows a stick figure of a little girl who gets contacted by a fourth-generation clone of herself from a very distant future. Oh, I love that you had, you said it's a brilliant film that follows a stick figure. So. <laughs> great. It's actually so cerebral, so amazing, so well thought out. Um, but this world that they're in is obsessed with pre- preservation and nostalgia. Um, I would urge everyone to see this brilliant stick figure film. Uh, it's only 16 minutes and it's definitely worth it. What I personally like about this quote is that it draws from one of the cornerstones of Buddhist thinking, uh, which is not wasting our time thinking about the past or the future because they are just illusions after all. You must live in the present, live now. And that's why now is the envy of all dead? Exactly. Okay. Um, and when I look and when I look around, and uh, I'm sure some of you also have noticed that that's exactly what people are doing, myself included. Uh, that is why they say people living in a renaissance are unaware that they are living in one. Well, maybe now is the envy of all the future. <laughs> We're <laughs> yeah. living in a really, really cool time. We yeah, should, exactly. Uh, we should exactly. take advantage of it. <laughs> so on top of that, Patrick also talked about the theme of permanence, you know, the theme of the whole issue, which I really love because it has a very paradoxical nature and it has a paradoxical relationship to advertising, you know, because, you know, for me and and for a lot of people I know, advertising, which on the surface is one of the most ephemeral, you know, forms of communication or creativity can also have an extraordinarily timeless and and, um, eternal or, or permanent effect. So the irony is that you know things that are meant to be ephemeral often have an incredibly lasting significance. You know they leave a permanent imprint mm-hmm. on our consciousness, and uh, we're going to play a little snippet for you, which I'm sure uh, every one of you, no matter what your age or background, somewhere in the back of your mind, you remember this spot. The beer and the burgers, the light and the noise. Three, he's still here with the boys. Lovely bubbles for aches and pains with upset stomach. Alka Seltzer works. So advertising, while being this, you know, incredibly ephemeral and topical medium, can sometimes have a more permanent effect, you know, on on the memory and on shaping perception, even more so in some cases than more permanent mediums like film. You know, uh, feature-length movies or or novels. Um, it, it, this is not to compare different art forms, but it's to ta- think about the paradox. You know, between what is meant to be ephemeral versus what is meant to be quite permanent. So, another one is that if you remember from the '70s, and it's been played ever since then on YouTube, is the anti-pollution ad from the U.S. with that Native American chief on a I horse. I finally saw this. Did you see this? <laughs> I finally saw yeah. this. It's and he's so on this horse by the side of the road, you know, and these Americans are driving by in a car and they're just tossing their pollution, their litter from their car window. And he's looking, you know, with that thousand yard stare and this one tear rolls down his cheek yeah. and they do a close up. And it became this incredibly iconic uh, ad and this iconic image about, you know, the um, disrespect for nature 
and the ancient kind of respect for nature that that Native Americans had as well. And I think it really became kind of the image of it captured the eternal emotion of of sadness that is associated disappointment that is associated mm-hmm. when people. Uh, behave in a way that you feel is unconscious, unaware, disrespectful, not only to nature, you just know, but just ignorant, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as they say in the African-American community that I first lived in, in, in Philadelphia, that's just ignorant, <laughs> I-G-N-U-N-T. Uh, that's what my mom calls me all that's the time. That's just ignorant. <laughs> um, but it was meant to be a one-season campaign, and it really became this almost like permanent image yeah. of well, the— you know, loathing of disrespect and, and lack of dignity and the love of, of and respect for nature. That's really the idea that it, that it represents. Yeah, and it's still like, it's still prevalent today. I've seen the ad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this was in the 70s. So, And uh, same thing with me growing up uh, in Philadelphia and uh, having come over from, you know, from East Asia and seeing for the first time the Tony the Tiger commercials. And what was weird was uh, I glommed onto that commercial I love the product. I love the look of the box. I love the colors in particular, but I especially love Tony. And what I realized today is, you know, I came from a culture where tigers were revered. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was a bridge between where I came from and where I was oh, coming wow. into, right? Here was this bright, you know, sort of orange and black, happy tiger. All the colors, in fact, were colors that were already appealing to me. He's not the same tiger as he was yesterday, though. No, he has. Like Aunt Jemima, he's gone through. You know, he's gotten oh, a, he's gotten a fitness God. trainer and, yeah, and a makeover and et cetera. But the uh, you know, but he's still Tony in the sense that he still has that they're yeah. great, you know, kind of um, <laughs> attitude about him, right? And yeah, he no, he definitely. welcomed me to my new country Unwavering in a way that opt- felt familiar, optimism. right? Mm-hmm. So that too became quite permanent. So yeah, he was a very like friendly tiger. Yeah, a very friendly tiger. So you know, you know, and, and as we say, you know, in in the this podcast, we're gonna we're gonna have a dizzying melange of high and lowbrow. We're gonna go up to yeah, high yeah. culture and okay. back down to <laughs> pop culture and cereal boxes, and that's as it should be. Um, so in, you know, in our interview with Patrick, we mentioned the term legacy and its relation to uh, paradox. And let's have a quick listen. Record. So another really interesting paradox, again, uh, and then to turn that around, have you found that that those who try to create a legacy, it's a word that we hear a lot these days, creating a legacy, which is about permanence. And I find that, that often those endeavors actually fail to produce anything permanent because they don't have any significance in the now. Mm-hmm. That's, um, I think, yeah, I think that's a really good way of, of looking at it. I mean, instinctively, those aren't always stories I set out to tell because they don't interest me so much. But one point, one that does fit within that category, uh, we have a great piece by the writer Elmo Keep, who uh, is the uh, bête noire, shall we say, of the Mars One movement. She wrote those great uh, pieces on medium, sort of exposing the the folly of that that got a lot of attention last year. We got her to write a follow-up on that, just looking at all these people trying to, you know, 
push us towards Mars in unrealistic ways and thinking about, well, okay, clearly we've got to leave this planet behind and we're going to do that through this big performative you know, outer space journey. And we tried with her to explore, like, well, A, I really wanted to know why those people bugged Elmo so much because <laughs> it's interesting that she keeps doing that, but also to explore what what is really going on here and the the piece where she goes to these various conventions of people planning to journey to mars what what emerges is yeah it's people are forgetting the right now the they they dream of this massive investment and ego of something well beyond their dream something that is for millennia down the line and they are not in any way dealing with the issues on the ground, on this earth, in this ecosystem we are in right now. And that for Elmo, as I was pushing her to really explain to me why she continued to return to this topic in uh, various publications from ours to Vice to Matter to all of these places, it was that that emerged. It was, let's actually focus on the real issues and that there is a real danger to these, these grand follies and dreams. Do you think that this interest in, you know, these grand, long future timelines like moving our civilization to Mars are in fact in some ways an avoidance or, 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 or escaping from the issues of today? I, I, think, I think absolutely. And, you know, I'm the last person to say that there's any problem with dreaming of big things. You know, whenever... Anything serious happens in the world, and you know, there's a lot of serious things happening in the world today, yesterday, this week, this month, this year. There's always dark and brutal things happening, and if we were to stop being joyful within that, if we were to only focus on those things, then we would stop being human. There is the dreaming is important when it becomes damaging or dangerous is when those dreams become the major focus of investment, of strategy, of dealing, when they detract from the basic issues of dealing with the urgent problems of climate change, straight up. Um, so for those wondering who Elmo Keep is, she is an Australian writer based in America. Patrick was referencing her piece about the Mars One Project called All Dressed Up for Mars and Nowhere to Go. To give you some... I feel like that every morning. <laughs> All Dressed Up for Mars and Nowhere to Go. <laughs> um, to give you some background on what this Mars project was or is, uh, it's a co company that hopes to send at least six groups of four to Mars in 2025 with the intention of colonizing the planet. Uh, the mission, of course, costs a pretty penny. It's uh, it's about six billion dollars. So there's planning to send six groups of four people to Mars in 2025. Like they're all happening. Yeah, in they're all they're all going to go. Uh, well, why separately? I don't know. <laughs> I suppose to like one big convoy or school bus. I don't know. Like, what if just one, like one or two, go wrong? Okay. Then yeah, Never mind. Back to you. yeah, that's six billion dollars down the drain, I guess. <laughs> So it's actually got some a lot of traction. Like the moment it came out, 200,000 applicants, all of whom are willing to leave this planet from Mars and never return, signed up. Um, and what Elmo speaks about is the absurdity of this and the waste of resources this actually is. And it kind of is a reflection of how we are dealing with our problems now. Uh, and even though having these dreams and goals can be great, 
Um, it just can be very dangerous when large investments like $6 billion uh, are sunk into these unrealistic ventures. I think it's also very representative of people's current mindset when it comes to dealing with problems of the world. Uh, the idea that since these problems that we have created are so irreversible, we should just give up on this world and just go on to the next planet. Well, but it's the fundamental um, choice, the fundamental instinct that people have when they're faced with what they think is uh, a crisis mm -hmm. is fight or flight. Exactly. Right. So some people insist on staying and fighting the good fight uh, or solving the problem, tackling the issue, whatever words you choose. Uh, and others, their instinctual response is to leave and start fresh. I think that's the majority of people. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, that's one of the, the reasons why we've colonized this planet, right, mm -hmm. was because some of our ancestors said, for example, a lot of the second yeah, and third sons in England you know, in the in the you know seventeenth and eighteenth century, mm -hmm. said, "I'm not the eldest son. I'm not going to inherit the farm, the estate. Uh, there's no reason for me to say. So, really, screw you guys. Yeah. You know, I'm going over there. You know, to paraphrase Eric Cartman from <laughs> South Park. But the um, so there's always going to be that that tendency that that um, bifurcated kind of tendency. Yeah. Uh, you're faced with what you consider is a problem or a crisis or a challenge, and some people will fight. Just get the fuck out of Dodge, yeah. And some people will, fl <laughs> uh, will fl you know, flight, will, will, will flee, um, et cetera. So, yeah, so it is also, um, it's, it's, we also just forget how dependent we are on this world, and it, we need it way more than, than it needs us. Um, so in your interview with Patrick, you recite this Fritjof Capra quote uh, found in the latest edition of the Alpine Review. Uh, for those unfamiliar with Capra, he's a brilliant Austrian physicist who is a world leader in systems theory. Not to be confused with Frank Capra, who, no. <laughs> who wrote and directed It's a Wonderful Life, but it's not the same Capra. No, but yes. on equal playing field. <laughs> uh, and so the quote that you mentioned, uh, it speaks to how embedded and dependent we are on the cyclical processes of nature. And in order for us to survive, we need to move towards that holistic way of thinking as opposed to working as disconnected parts. Very much so. Uh, and I think, in fact, even um, you know, the blockbuster film Avatar you know, talked uh, very crudely but talked very effectively mm -hmm. about the difference between this mechanistic you know, and imperial kind of thinking, you know, the, the conquering kind of with machines kind of mindset yeah. And the ecosystem, the holistic, almost consciousness of the planet that they yeah, were invading. Exactly. And ultimately, the ecosystem resisted Nature the wins, invasion. Yeah. Nature does win. The ecosystem knows how to rectify these problems, ecosystems being intelligent things. So families you know, can be ecosystems, communities, natural environments, you know, um, entire biomes, as, as biologists would say, are all ecosystems. So in fact, the human body is in itself a vast ecosystem of different communities, right, of, of cells and species. We have thousands of species that are indigenous and necessary to our proper functioning the, mm -hmm. as human beings. So it's the basic framework for our existence is these intelligent, evolving, dynamic ecosystems. Yeah, and to not be a Debbie Downer, but to bring it back to the, the climate change Capra's real message in a lot of his work is the first step into solving these problems is learning ecological literacy or eco-literacy, as he usually calls it, um, which is being able to understand and work within these ecosystems. And when we begin to understand these relationships between the systems, 
we can start to design this world so it supports, cooperates, and nurtures nature's ability to sustain life. Uh, and I think what's interesting about that is, the, back to the theme of our entire podcast, the new renaissance, like any renaissance, it's about a huge paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the paradigm shifts in, in the, rena- the, the renaissance was the shift from thinking that the world was flat to the world is round, for the shift from thinking that this flat earth was the center of the universe to then realizing, no, we have a solar system and the yeah. sun is at the center and that, that even not even that is the center of the universe. Exactly. Et cetera. We're insignificant. Uh, yeah. So, well, it's not that we're insignificant. I didn't, I don't think that that's the conclusion one should draw from it. It's, mm-hmm. it's that there is a much bigger framework Okay. An interconnected framework that, that we of. are a part of, yes, that we're okay. a very important part of, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, but that that we are not the physical center. Exactly. And this physical center is a sphere. I mean, that was a really big jump for people to go from flat to sphere, right? Yeah. And for us today, going from the notion of mechanistic thinking, the way we you know, create our companies, mm-hmm. the way, you know, that we create products, the way Buildings, we even, yeah. you know, yeah, build things and market things. Uh, we still have a lot of leftovers from the 20th century and from the Industrial Revolution. But now more and more people are thinking that we should consciously design things as yeah. ecosystems. System design. Yeah. System design. A very interesting recent example in Canada of the uh, of a massive failure due to more mechanistic thinking versus ecosystem thinking mm-hmm. is the Target uh, failure. You know, <laughs> the Target disaster. stores launched, you know, recently in uh, Canada. It was actually now. Now it's been what a couple of years. I think it's been a year too. It's been about a year, and it was such a massive fail as compared with other, you know, um, retail yeah. and, and product launches in Canada. Like we recently saw the Uniqlo. Yeah. launch, you know, wow. and it was for, I would say, at least a month. They were every day, there. they had to put a velvet rope in front of the Uniqlo store at the Eaton Center, and hundreds of people lined up because they could not fit them into the store. It wow. was a massively successful launch. The Muji store opening up, you know, in multiple places mm-hmm. in Toronto, really, really... Both of those um, companies did, they naturally think in more sort of ecosystem ways, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Target did not. So let's have a listen to uh, Patrick's experience around that. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, two kind of dystopic examples of mechanistic versus uh, ecosystem thinking, probably more about the mechanistic style, and that is right next to that Capra quote about the zeitgeist. There's a really interesting article about the abject failure of Target Canada. Um, and they're sort of not only their mechanistic and invasion kind of uh, model, but also their sort of cultural insensitivity and lack of cultural awareness or sensitivity and not having an ecosystem way of, of being, to me, are very correlated sort of things, you know, when you try to superimpose a system into another. Do you, can you talk about that a little bit? That article seemed to really nail why Target, you know, so failed coming to Canada despite their enormous resources. Mm, absolutely. And this is, uh, so Louis-Jacques, my co-editor, that's been, I mean, the failure of Target was a 
a big question that was that drove that aerials conference and you know a, a lot of the business thinking in this magazine was that question of what what was going on there and it was absolutely that failure to operate as a network. Uh, the, the One of the main speakers we had at the Aerials Conference was Chris Fussell, who was uh, a soldier who worked with uh, General Stanley McChrystal in Iraq. And the McChrystal group, that they, since McChrystal left the military, have actually taken to you know, using the strategies they had to employ in Iraq when they realized they couldn't just invade in those old school uh, modes of power and empire that they were used to, that they needed to operate on the ground and understand how cells worked, how communities worked, how things would spread. They've tried to take that into a business context, and that's very interesting. What, what we see, what we saw with Target was essentially a very outdated understanding of where power is in retail. It's that sense that, you know, it's as simple as it, the re, uh, retail expansion being a real estate problem as opposed to something of genuine and natural integration. It And, you know, it wasn't just about having the communities themselves ready for Target or wanting it. I think there was a market in Canada that were excited about Target coming, but their supply chains weren't set up properly. The understanding of how purchase happened here was not set up. It was it was that basic arrogance of an invading force. And I, I think they, they learned the lesson very quickly. And, um, and I, I think it will be a long time before we see them again. And in fact, uh, I, I was quite struck. I started <clears throat> laughing out loud when I saw, you know, the sentence in in your article about insiders told me that it was only as Target started shipping half-empty containers that they realized they hadn't even taken into account that Canada uses the metric system. We use kilograms <laughs> and liters, you know, not pounds and, and gallons. That was incredibly hilarious and, and weird to me. Is that, I assume, of course, that's, that's true. How could that happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, how could that happen? There was some great reporting in Canadian business about this, actually. Um, earlier in the year, there was a wonderful sort of forensic beat by beat TikTok uh, expose of the insides of, of the disaster of Target, which I really highly recommend you dig out and read. But it was arrogance, pure and simple. It was um, it was IT groups and tech consultants not really bothering to understand, being stubborn about the systems that were in place. But, you know, very expensive consultancies not doing the homework properly, presuming that they can put preset templates onto things. It was, you know, executives making uh, unrealistic demands, not taking personal responsibility. It's, you know, it's it's a catalog of disaster that just ends up with these absolutely absurd outcomes. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, a really spectacular example of when you are not just not culturally sensitive, but you don't really um, come to understand, you know, what is the ecosystem that you're entering? What are the dynamics of it? What are the rules? What are the patterns, et cetera? And uh, that's what happens. 
uh, as opposed to, you know, as I mentioned before, Uniqlo, which uh, seems to really work itself into the mm-hmm. the ecosystem while presenting, yeah, while presenting you know, a really unique point of view and really cool products, you know, but the products alone uh, aren't going to do it. Right, you have to create an environment, you, and you have to work yourself into a larger cultural environment. Yeah, intuitively, their products really, are pretty good, actually. I, I still have the same jeans that I bought like six years ago, and really? they, they were eight bucks. Cool. <laughs> well, New I'm York. wearing Uniqlo thermal socks. Something <laughs> oh, I would, was not expecting to buy at Uniqlo. <laughs> um, but there you go. The the new Japanese invasion yes. is is happening as we speak. <laughs> So that that basically concludes our um, second episode of The Next Voice You Hear. I'm Nevin Ryan. I'm Juan Yoon. And the next voice you hear will be Luigi Ferrara from the Institute Without Boundaries. So stay tuned and uh, keep your ears open. You've been listening to The Next Voice You Hear with Juan Yoon.